0: together, and and then I'll let you be seated. Picking up in uh, verse 43 of chapter 5, I'll read to the end. Uh, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Go ahead and be seated. All right. Well, I, as you guys have uh, been, you know, reading ahead, I'm sure that as you uh, read, you know, anything in regard to, to God's standards of morality, God's standards of living, you, don't you encounter a conflict in yourself? Like, you know that what God... Expects what God demands is the higher virtue, but then another side of you says, "You got to be kidding me, right?" It just as I told first service. It just seems that a part of me, maybe as R.C. Sproul says, that part of me that still hates God, that corner of my soul that is um, always opposed to Him, the old man, my flesh. That the Sermon on the Mount is just a a collection of inconvenient truths. It's it's unreasonable expectations and. but the other part of me longs to arrive at this place to where I've shed all of my resistance to that and I've conformed fully to the image of Christ. Um, That day is coming, but it's just not coming as soon as you would like and me, for sure. Uh, But it's coming. So, yeah. I was thinking that up till now, of course, Jesus had uh, been exercising divine authority in what he expects. And, uh, and he has that prerogative. He should do that. But it's not until this last part of the chapter where, of course, he continues to do the same, but now it becomes an issue in my heart because it's a test of his lordship in me. Uh, you know, it was one thing we might say for him to condemn anger and uh, to frown upon any kind of slander, to expose, you know, the darkness of the heart in terms of lust, the dangers of all that. It was one thing to forbid divorce, except for fornication among believers. It was fine that he put a stop to oaths and that he told us to keep our word. He may have pushed things a little when he condemned retaliation, but it's altogether different when Jesus uh, drops a statement like, you need to do this so that you can be as God our Father is. Therefore, you shall be perfect, even as the Father in heaven is perfect. Now, that is the ultimate way of expressing authority. But then it says something about me. Uh, Is Christ Lord of all of this? The way that I think, the way that I respond to humanity, the way that I look at humanity. And um, so hard stuff from Jesus. So let's, uh, let's look deeper at it. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, Now the problem isn't with the words that you see there in capitals. Those words are the words of God. Not completely in the text of Leviticus 19.18. You know what the rest of the verse says. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What a convenient thing for the Pharisees, the rabbis, to drop. Because Jesus is quoting them from the Talmud. And uh, it's it's one thing to say to love your neighbor. It's another thing to say love him as you love yourself. Uh, And the reason is, is because of how much we love ourselves, we couldn't imagine bestowing that upon someone else. In fact, Jesus says that if you take all of the love that you have for yourself, and if you bestow it on your neighbors, you will fulfill all of the moral demands of God. That's how sick we are. We love ourselves that much, uh, but can't imagine bestowing that on someone else. That's to treat them as a king, as royalty. So the problem there isn't the words in capital. That's The words of God, the problem is with the words that follow in small print. Those are the words of the rabbis. You shall love your neighbor, but you shall hate your enemy. What a strange thing to put in the imperative form. Uh, Not, you may hate your enemy, but we couch it in language that appears to be a command from God. That's a very scary thing. And so the rabbis were and did teach that you should indeed love your neighbor, your family, your countrymen, those within the the same ethnic category, but even these had conditions for them as they do for us, mind you. There was in their minds justification for hating those uh, within Israel like tax collectors, prostitutes, um, political opponents, even those ignorant of the scriptures. The ignorant were looked down upon. Uh, They complained because many of them were uh, sort of viewing Christ as a potential Messiah, as a prophet. The Pharisees despising those people, said these people are cursed simply because they do not know the scriptures. But it was them that didn't know the scripture. One time they said, I think they said it to Nicodemus, you know, go ahead and look and see if, was there ever a prophet from Galilee? I just see Nicodemus going, there's Jonah, just counting them. It's crazy, yeah. You know, prostitutes, let me back up, tax collectors, uh, though they were ethnically identical to all the Jews, they were despised because they were these dishonest employees of Rome. Uh, They were traitors to the nation of Israel. They were getting rich off of their countrymen, their brethren. And uh, for that reason, they were rejected. They were marginal. They were pushed away. Uh, Prostitutes, you know, they represented the height of immorality. And so the Pharisees had no problem despising them. Those who differed politically from their perspective were dangerous. They should be hated. Those who differed Politically, by the way, were the Sadducees. And then, of course, they looked down on the ignorant. And then there was Jesus who uh, emerged as this this nobody from Nobodyville called Nazareth. And he was challenging all of their authority. He was differing with their interpretation of the scriptures, fighting with them over it. And uh, he was certainly worth their hatred, worthy of it. And then, ultimately, that manifested itself in the cross. They killed, they murdered him. When it came to the Gentiles, who were of another ethnicity, the Jews looked at them as uh, they, were, uh, they could be used for whatever benefit they might provide. Uh, but they were not to be the, their friends. And if they were of no use, they were no good. But the rabbis reserved them. They said that they were at least good for one thing, and that was to provide hell with the fuel needed to keep burning. They said God created the Gentile. That's us, by the way. Uh, to keep hell burning like a fire. It was also the Samaritans who they hated. This was a mixed race of people. They dwelt in uh, a province between the two Jewish provinces. So you had uh, Judah in the south, you had Galilee in the north, Samaria in the middle. They despised them so deeply that uh, when they had to travel for the feast from the north to the south, uh, they would go out of their way to cross the river, the Jordan River, into Gentile territory travel south down the east side of the Jordan River, cross over at Jericho, all to avoid, it would, take, it would take days and days longer. But they didn't want to touch the ground that the Samaritans touched. They didn't want to have any kind of interaction with those despicable people from their perspective. They despised them. They were half Jew and half something else. The, uh, the, the hatred between them, this enmity, went back all the way to the time of Nehemiah. Interesting that they would blame what happened back then or continue that animosity forward so many years. It's amazing how we can perpetuate hate one generation after the next. um, As I jested with first service, I'm not sure everybody knew I was jesting, but I said, aren't you relieved to know that God's people have left all of that in the past? Today we're above such petty nonsense. I, for one, I'm grateful that we don't slander those on the political left. We feel no disdain for those with abhorrent theology. Uh, I'm so thankful that we no longer look down our nose at the homeless. Blessed to know that we're compassionate toward the prostitute and others that dwell in deep darkness. Just look how far we've come. What an irrelevant document, the Sermon on the Mount. Certainly doesn't apply to us. We've arrived. <clears throat> Jesus says, But I say to you, you love your enemies. You bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. The the voice of man, whether it's the oral tradition of the rabbis um, or it's you (laughs) or it's me, from fallen man basically says, love those who love you. Uh, You should probably at least tolerate those who bother you, but you should certainly hate those who oppose you. But the voice of the God-man Jesus Christ, the one that we call Lord, says that his people, these citizens of the kingdom should love indiscriminately, indiscriminately. The word love here is agape. I'm sure you've heard volumes of sermons on what agape love is. I believe that more has been said about agape than actually is true. Um, But what we find with agape love is that it is a willful love in spite of the one loved. It's an indiscriminate form of love. It's a love that loves blindly. And that's why with agape love, agape love should be mingled with discernment, lest you love someone foolishly. But it's indiscriminate. God calls us to an indiscriminate form of love. He says that we should demonstrate this God kind of love by blessing those who curse us. Now, uh, to bless doesn't mean... To be happy. Now, when we looked at the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The Greek word that we translate to bless there means to be happy. But he's using a different Greek word now that we translate the same. That's not confusing at all. But this word is uligeo, and it means to speak well of. It means to sing someone's praises. Jesus says, Those who would verbally heap curses upon you. Of course, we want to reciprocate, because how dare anyone say anything about us, even if it's true. He says, reciprocate praise, reciprocate speaking well of them. See what that does to them. You want to confuse an enemy. Speak well of them. Don't speak well of them to me. Speak well of them to them. That's what Jesus is saying. Engage them with good speaking, good things to say. Find something. And then Jesus essentially says that our love cannot stop with words only. Love must take action by doing good to those who hate us. Doing good to them, being active toward that, proactive. And even more, he says, our love for them should be brought before the throne of God that we might plead with the Most High for their sake. Praying for their salvation, praying for their repentance, praying for their health, praying for their prosperity, taking all of their needs, bringing them to the Father and say, Father, please bless this enemy of mine. Provide for their needs. As Paul says in Romans chapter 2, it is the goodness of God that leads a man. Bless them. Pray for them. To what end? To what benefit? Jesus says, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. God is not asking us to do anything he hasn't been doing for thousands of years to his enemies to those who curse him. Yeah. That we might be sons of our father in heaven. What does that mean? Well, when a boy does something that is indicative of his father, we say he's his father's son. He's his father's son. That behavior in the son reminds us of the dad. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the world, when they watch you, it should remind them of your dad. This one who indiscriminately causes his son to shine on everyone. It should be a reflection of his character to the world. Yeah, it's indicative of God. So Jesus is demanding love from us because it is for us, since Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, those created in the image of God to reflect, to bring that image into. That was the very first purpose assigned to humanity, that we would take God's image into the world, represent him, whereas as hit, we're ambassadors for God since the beginning. Yeah, it's demanding us to be that way. As we said at the beginning, I believe that every regenerate person, everybody that has experienced the love of God and forgiveness, regeneration, they long for this. They long for this. The believer wants to be like their dad. Amen? If you don't want to be like your dad, we need to have a conversation. Okay? We need to start someplace else. He says to love the ungodly, and when you love the ungodly, you are being godly. What evidence do we have that God behaves this way to his enemies, Jesus says? father in heaven makes, it's his son, by the way, rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is a really interesting um, piece of theology. God, you know, since the fall of man, uh, he did not like make the sun to shine on one population, the righteous, that would certainly be us. And then, you know, not the evil, but indiscriminately from the beginning, at least from the fall, his son has shined upon everyone. And his he has given his reign to everyone. Okay. Now so we can't in Washington think that we're more righteous because we have all this rain. <clears throat> it goes to the wicked too. The distribution of his love indiscriminately upon the evil, the good. Now at this point Jesus could have gone on for chapters to show that this this general grace and goodness of God is and how it's demonstrated throughout the world. He doesn't. It happens later, so I want to talk about it because I think it's super important. In John's gospel, we find Jesus himself describing God's love to us in a familiar way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do, Do you see the indiscriminate nature of God's love in this? It is a declaration of love. It does not say that God loved the world because of anything virtuous about the world. If that's the case, it diminishes the love of God. It Diminishes it. It doesn't say that we were worth loving. <clears throat> it doesn't say that we were lovable. We would love for the text to say that because it would affirm us, but it doesn't say that. The text is nothing about God being motivated by something outside of himself. He wasn't motivated by us. He wasn't motivated by something about us, he was motivated by himself. If he was motivated by us, historically, he would have destroyed us again, okay? When God is motivated by man, he has historically responded with something like a global flood. It's true, A confusion of languages, fire and brimstone, exile, deportation, famine, plague, and death because the wages of sin is, is death and we're a bunch of sinners. We deserve death for sinning against the Most High God. But when God is motivated internally, that is, when he's motivated by his own nature, he has historically covered us with animal skins. Do you remember the story? Genesis chapter three, the fall. Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. You know they looked ridiculous when they were done. Uh, I have a fig tree, it's fuzzy. Of all the variety of leaves to choose from in the garden, I would not... Pick something to torment me, okay? But God rejected that covering for their shame and he had to kill something. Something had to die in their place in order to cover their shame. Yeah, that's what he does. Historically, when God is motivated within himself, he has us build an ark. He leads us to Canaan. He delivers us from Egypt. He leads us back to the promised land. And ultimately, he leads us to Calvary where he gave his son to us to provide the ultimate covering. I'm sure that you've listened to teachings on John 3.16, and many Bible teachers, uh, they want to kind of insert something of our self-worth into the text, uh, but Jesus says nothing of that. And uh, it's dangerous to insert those kinds of things. But the Father did not send his Son because we were worth saving, but he was just motivated to save us because of who he is by his self-determined, indiscriminate, unconditional love. Crazy love. Paul, uh, he comments on this further in Romans 5. He says, listen carefully to the language. He says, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we read passages like that, where we can think clearly without human pride, this need that we have to be affirmed of our worthiness. When you look at this text, what sense of worthiness do you have? Did you see what Paul said about us? We should be offended without strength morally. He called us moral weaklings, verse 6, ungodly, objects of divine wrath, verse 9, sinners, he says, you were the enemies of God. Any self-worth in that commentary? I don't think so. I don't think so. The scriptures are never in, in, in intent on building man up, but about being honest about our depravity, <clears throat> our need for God. God demonstrated his own love toward us while we were all of these things. He gave us his best when we were at our worst. He was not motivated to send Jesus because of any quality in us. There's no quality in that list. <clears throat> He was purely motivated within by the qualities in himself, loving indiscriminately. If he were discriminate with his love, if he was motivated outside of himself, he would just have to crush us. So when Jesus calls us to love our enemies, he's demanding that we be like our Father, who is not motivated by anything but love. If you're motivated by people, you will look at the way they are, you'll look at the things they say, you'll look at the way they're dressed. You look at the things they do and you will discriminate. You will say they don't they're not worthy of my time, of my love, of my goodness. But if you have the love of God in you, you are blind to them. This is a willful kind of love that is in spite of the one that is loved. It's indiscriminate. It's unconditional. It cares not the condition of the person. It just it just loves. It just loves. That's what Jesus is calling us to do, the evil and the good, the just and the unjust all participate in his love. And Jesus is saying everyone in the world like that should be the recipient of our love. Could he say anything more ridiculous to us? He was, but it's more than that. It's to every last person in the world that he has offered his son, all of which were condemned and worthy of death John says, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation means to satisfy wrath. Jesus came to be a propitiation. He came to satisfy all the demands of justice against us. That's a propitiation. We deserved wrath. Christ came and took it. He, was the, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Remember, Jesus died for the ungodly. There wasn't anybody else to die for, okay? It's just us. Oh, he didn't do it just for the redeemed, but for the entire world of the unredeemed. God doesn't coerce anyone, but he does offer his love to everyone, <clears throat> even though not a single one of them had it coming. We are called to this kind of love. And if you love indiscriminately and unconditionally, Jesus is saying you will put God's love on display in the world, you will be the child of your father in heaven. You reflect his glorious image to humanity. If we get caught up in loving the lovable or those we believe for whatever reason deserve our attention, our love becomes discriminant, conditional. Listen, that kind of love is terrestrial. It's humanly. It's broken. It's depraved. That's what it is. If that's all you got, you're just, you're just a human it becomes completely unlike God. James warns (coughs) of this kind of discriminant love. He says, For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, You sit here in a good place. And say to the poor man, You stand there or sit here at my footstool. you, uh, He says, Have you not shown partiality? among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Partial, that is to be discriminate. It's really the same thing. It's this, we discriminate in our love because we can get something out of that person. There's some reciprocation. We do good to the rich, as in the context there in James, because of what they do for us or what they might do for us. And James says that is an evil thought. And then to say to the poor man, you stand or you sit at my footstool like a dog, that's an evil thought. That's discrimination. In love, it's not a blind sort of love. It's motivated by self-interest. You love them for what they can do for you. That's what Jesus condemns. To show partiality is discrimination, but a God sort of love is impartial. Let's go back to our text. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Now, this is, this, this is a cultural reference that has historical significance. To us, it almost means nothing. We might even have tax collectors in our church right now. If you work for the IRS, get out. <laughs> this is different This is different. Jesus is, he is making a huge point here that those in that culture were pierced by. And I believe that we need to experience the same kind of abruptness from Jesus. Like, I can't believe he just went to that. That's what this is, okay? See, if you show discriminant love, Jesus is saying you will be no different than the most despicable people in our culture. Now he's getting personal. Because he selects the most despised population in the Jewish world to compare everyone else to. You see, Jesus could have selected the prostitute or the Gentile because the average Jew despised both of them. But the average man, the average person, was not negatively affected by them. So Jesus chose to compare people with someone they despised because of how those people negatively impacted them. They were despised as traitors, but they were getting rich off of them. He affected everyone's pocketbook as a traitor. He was hitting everyone where it hurt. So Jesus says, because of the way you love, you are no different than the worst among us. No better than a tax collector. As I said, that's not something that's significant to us, really. Not that we love to pay taxes. Don't get me started on taxes, okay? But there's someone that you despise most. There's an individual, there's a there's a population, there's something out there, someone that hits you where it hurts. And so I want to poke around a bit of that, I want to meddle. If I'm to address things within our culture, the conversations that I hear, um, so that's what I'm gonna do. So I'll just bring up you know, gun control lobbyists and legislators and politicians. Scum. Take away our guns and currently trying to limit our magazine capacities. If those are the people you currently despise, Jesus wants you to know something. If you only love those who love you, you are no different than these people because they do the same thing, the same thing. Maybe it's the one responsible for inflation and elevated gas prices. Those people that say down with oil and coal, up with solar and wind power. These people are the worst. You might say... But Jesus would remind you of something if you only greet those who agree with you or with those who benefit you in some way. You are the same. You're the same as them. That's what he's saying. Maybe it's not gun control people. Maybe it's not the inflation people, the so-called green energy folks. Maybe it's the LGBTQ community. Somebody shouted out uh, the Planned Parenthood people last service. I don't know who did it, but that's a good one too. Both of these communities, you know, their agenda, the indoctrination of our culture from the from the school curriculum. I've seen the state-approved school curriculum. In cartoon form, it's it's pornography. It is pornography. Okay. Teaching young children to to behave profanely in sexual ways with pictures, with drawings, it's profanity. We see it in our media, we see it in Hollywood. They're trying to corrupt the sacredness of sex and gender. They're an affront to all that is holy. But Jesus says, if you only love those who love you, you know better than them. You know better than them. Maybe it's Fauci and his scientific inability to agree with himself. Walensky, the director of the CDC, and her team has refused to publish their data on COVID vaccines because we, the people, are too stupid to interpret the information. Thank you for that. We shouldn't despise them. They were appointed after all. Maybe we should despise their boss, our president, who is steered by left-wing ideologies. Maybe that's meddling. But if you only love those who love you, Jesus says, you're no different. When Jesus says, you're no different than a tax collector, he is trying to get at his audience. I don't know necessarily what gets at you. But you know somebody, you know a population that irks you, angers you. And maybe it's even for the sake of other people. Maybe it's for the sake of your children. But Jesus says you need to be very, very careful that you're not like them. You see, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And because of that, our love must exceed the world's. It cannot be the same. If we only do as they do, we're no different. We may have differing viewpoints, differing politics, differing morals. We better have better morals. But when it comes to love, We may be the same, and Jesus says that would profit nothing. Now, I'm concerned with Jesus that if there is no difference, that Judgment Day is going to be very sad. When God judges the professed believer alongside those we despise, and he says, I see no difference. In terms of love, which is the supreme ethic, you are the same. You are the same. How dangerous is that? God might say that throughout your life, you have professed to be my child, but you have behaved like a child of the world. For thousands of years, I have watered the crops of the wicked and I have brought their crops, their fields to harvest. Those whom you despise, those who hate me. And at the appointed time, I sent forth my son to be a sacrifice that I might forgive their sins and make them my own special people. Created in holiness. And you, you were among them You were one of them, broken, despicable, wretched, wanting nothing to do with me. But my love was relentless. I drew you, I wooed you to myself. And on this day, what do you have to show for it? Have you forgotten where you came from? What you were when I found you, lost, blind, condemned. Have you ever read that portion of Ezekiel? When God says of Israel, I found you at a time when you were at your worst Like a child that was miscarried. I found you wreathing in your blood in the field. You were dying. And I came to you and I said, live. And then I gave you life. And then later, you went about the nations committing idolatry. That tragic story of Israel should not be our story. God reminds us you were one of them. I washed you. I sanctified you. I justified you with my son or by my son. It's important to be reminded of where we came from. Paul reminds Pastor Titus to remind his people of where they came from. He says this. He says, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were once also foolish. For we ourselves were also once foolish, the disobedient deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. <clears throat> but, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You guys, the believer has been created anew in Christ Jesus to be different, to stand out in the world. The Bible word for it is holy, which nobody understands these days. It's a strange word to be holy. It means to be separated. It means to be separate. And through regeneration, God has separated us from the world. We live in the world, but we're not to be of the world. And Jesus is saying the world should know it. The world should know it. We've been pulled away from the world and we've been incorporated into the family of God so that we would take on family likeness to our Father and then reflect that out to the world. The world should know the difference because the world is not like our Father in heaven, but we should be and we should shine in the world. Our love for the world should shame the love the world has for itself. Jesus says in our text, What do you do more than others? It has to be answered. What do you do more than others? What do we do more than the world? He says, Doing more than the world looks like loving our enemies. It looks like speaking well of those who curse us, doing good to those who hate us, Excuse me, and praying for those who spitefully use and persecute us. If there is... If there's no difference between us and the world, there is no difference. There is no difference. And that similarity should haunt us. It should frighten us because there must be a difference. Jesus says, we will be known ultimately by our fruit. But if there is no fruit to be seen, it's just not real. I'll never forget my son. We were driving by Fuller's Market. um, And they used to have, they cut them down a couple years ago, but they had those cherry trees in in the spring, those beautiful white blossoms. And my son pointed them out, and he says, "But they're only ornamental. They'll never bear fruit. They look good on the outside. They have nothing to offer, nothing to offer. There must be a difference. James warns people not to deceive themselves by thinking that, you know they can study the word, they can hear the word, they can understand what God expects from them, but do nothing about it. He says, "Do not be hearers only. Do not be hearers of the word only, but be doers." He says, "There's great danger in, in knowing but not doing. And the greatest evidence of faith is not just a confession of faith. Jesus is saying that it's indiscriminate love. And love is not passive. It goes out of its way to reveal its nature to the beloved. Imagine referring to your enemies as the beloved. Beloved just means the one who receives your love. And God has called us to give that love to them. In our passage here, we're told to love, to bless, to do good, and to pray. They're all in the verb form. Because love by nature is not passive. It must perform. It must do. And then Jesus tells us to what end? <clears throat> Horrifying words. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Perfection. What does that mean? <laughs> According to the Greek, the Greek word, that which is perfect lacks nothing. It's, it's whole. Uh, it, it has been brought to completion. It, it's a finished product. Uh, we might say that it, it, it's mature. It's full of age. My favorite definition for it is that it's it's fitted for the task. It's fitted for the task. Love, bless, pray, are we fitted for the task? It's also here, you know, mingled with a moral obligation. In that sense, it means to be blameless, spotless like a lamb who is suitable for sacrifice. They're fit for the task. They're without blemish. Those who love as the Father loves will be blameless. Now, the statement here, you know, Therefore, you shall be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. It probably looks back to where Jesus began in verse 21, where he's talking about anger and he's talking about lust and adultery and all of those things. And that as we, through life, master all of those things, then we become fit, fit for the task to glorify God in this world. Perfection is the end goal, and Jesus is calling us to it because that is to be as god is and we're to be the children of our father i believe that as we you know grow closer to god in our love because of what god says about love being doing no harm to a neighbor uh, being the fulfillment of the law all of those things that as we do that our our sinful anger will diminish if you it's hard to be angry with those that you're indiscriminately loving amen our lust will fade, divorce will decrease, and our word will become reliable, and we will bless and not seek vengeance. Our enemies will be prayed for. It's, it's crazy. I'm afraid, though, that some people read those words and all they read is that Jesus desires perfection. Does he desire perfection from us? No, he demands it. He demands it. Knowing that we will never achieve it in this life, but he's given us the end goal, He's filled us with his spirit so that we could move toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, who Paul says is the prize. He's called us to this, and by his grace, we must pursue with all of our might, understanding that it is his work, right? Paul said in Philippians 2 that it's God who uh, gives us both the desire and the ability to do according to his good pleasure. Okay, he began a good work in you. What does the rest say? He will finish it. He's the author. He's the finish. It is for us to cooperate. It's for us to humble ourselves and and, and just obey. Amen. So as I close last service, um, how many guys believe that hospitality is a virtue? Some of you are like, well, for some people. (laughs) But typically in our culture here, hospitality is something that we extend to people we know. But the Greek word for hospitality actually means kindness to strangers. Kindness to strangers. Uh, Paul says in Romans 12 to seek to show hospitality. Seek to show kindness to strangers. Well, you guys have someone on your hate list. Someone you despise. What would it look like for you to show kindness to them? To write down all the things about them that you despise and then pray for them. To intentionally speak to them and speak well to them. And then to invite them over for dinner. To, to be actively loving those that you despise. Why don't you think about it? And then why don't you just be brave and do it? How's that? Go ahead and stand up. Before I close, I had to tell first service. Um, uh, so, There's not as many kids in this service, but we have, I don't know, we probably have 150 in the first service, and there's crumbs and stuff, and it kind of becomes a little overwhelming to our cleanup crew. So if you have kept your kids in here, and there's crumbs, or if you still eat like a kid, and there's crumbs, would you kind of clean up after yourself, um, like civilized people do? And then also, you know, people bring their coffee cups in here, and then they leave them under the seats... If you would please take those with you, that would be a blessing to those who clean up. And we have decided that if you leave a nice coffee mug behind, we're done cleaning those up. We're going to take them home. And I'm going to fill my cabinet with the, 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 the coffee mugs that you love. And then I'm going to invite you over, and I'm just going to go look at all these nice coffee mugs that I have. Okay, so please grab them, take them with you. And... Um, or I will be drinking coffee out of them. Let's pray.